Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm speaking with Sanjay Sabnini, the chairman and CEO of CrowdGather. CrowdGather trades on the OTC bulletin board under the symbol CRWG. CrowdGather has been building up a dynamic network of sites by consolidating one of the oldest and most robust group of online users, those that post on message boards and forums. Their goal is to create the world's best user experience for forum communities and world-class service offerings for forum owners, with one of their properties being the popular Yuku.com. Mr. Sapnini is a serial entrepreneur and business strategist with a long-standing passion for the Internet and technology industries, as well as online network community building. A seasoned executive previously with several publicly held companies, he's assisted in raising over $200 million in public equity financing for these companies, and we are pleased to have him on the Ellis Mart Report today. Sanjay, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. In your words, what is CrowdGather? CrowdGather is a company that I started that goes back to about 2002, and the goal of CrowdGather has been to create a network of online forums or discussion-based communities. And since our inception in our first site in 2002, we've come quite a long way to where the network now enjoys about 200 million page views a month and about 20 million monthly unique visitors. The network spans a range of subjects. Most of them are consumer-oriented and focused, but you can think of these subjects as hobbies, interests, and passions. So CrowdGather is an enthusiast network around people and their passions. How do you monetize this, Sanjay? We monetize it in a very old-fashioned model, which is to leverage all of the page views and traffic into advertising. So we go to advertisers that are interested in the demographics on our sites, and we sell ad space to them very non-intrusive and doesn't really impact our memberships. The same model that YouTube uses, it's the same model that Facebook uses. You use our software and our sites for free, and in exchange, we get to make a little bit off the advertising. So I may be looking at your software on the Internet every day without even knowing it, correct? Absolutely. The only way you would know is if you went to the bottom and you saw the copyright notice that said CrowdGather. We do not try to change these communities or rebrand them in any ways because they're very long-standing. All we do is take over the engineering support and the monetization and let the members enjoy the experience they've always had. Now, if I have a new fashion line or perfume line or leather glove line, I can actually come to you to assist generating revenue for it. Yes, so what was happening was in the past, we would have demand from you know small niche advertisers or even branded advertisers. But we did not have the technology to get their ads to all of the different communities we owned. Since we acquired the communities that are part of our network, 
they're often on different software. They're not connected to each other. So if an advertiser just wants to get in front of all of our video gamers, it was a logistical nightmare last year. As of a few weeks ago, we've launched our forum advertising marketplace at addison.com, A-D-I-S-N.com. At addison.com, for the first time, these advertisers can now look for the right interests, look for the consumer they're interested in, find the sites they reside on, and put their ads right in front of the right membership. So we're very excited about this development. Are you going to be the new CBS or Cumulus of the Internet with literally little billboards or ads everywhere? I think it's a necessity to have advertising. I don't really think it's our goal. From a goal perspective, what CrowdGather was set up to do was to create a network of these very smart people that hang out on forums. Geeks, for lack of a better term, and I consider myself a geek, so it's by no means a pejorative. CrowdGather intends to take these experts in their various disciplines, people either seeking knowledge or sharing knowledge, and to create a robust membership network around them. We're still a little ways off from that part of the dream, but right now we're making progress and we're allowed to make progress because we have a very solid and scalable revenue model in that the bigger we grow, the more advertisers we are put in front of, and we're able to now convert their advertising on a specialty and subject basis. Sanjay, how are you grabbing new advertisers? Advertisers that we use to date are all basically advertising networks. We're not really in contact with too many direct advertisers. As we scale, the challenge that exists is that the large advertisers need you to be big enough for them to do business with, right? They've got more money than there are eyeballs for certain subjects. With our technology, with the Addison platform, we are now able to scale and connect a lot of little sites together into channels. By doing this, we are now in a position to actually go upstream and move up to brand advertisers. To date, we've just been working with partners that treat us on a nameless, faceless basis simply because we have sites and they're in the business of advertising on sites. As we are growing now and launching our platform, we're going to get much more subject matter specific type of advertising. And the good news is, the more specific the advertising, the more they pay. Let's say that I'd like to have a forum for my radio show. And instead of doing it myself, knowing that I don't have the time to manage it, and I know I need to hire someone that knows my business and is dedicated to that, can I come to you? Would CrowdGather build that forum? Not in the way you've described. It's actually a lot easier. You would go to one of our properties yuku.com, Y-U-K-U, and you would basically set up your own community using our software and our hosting completely for free. Again, the deal is simple. You build the membership, you be the administrator of the board, you control who says what. We, in exchange for giving you the software and the service, we get to keep the advertising units on the page. We do not have hands-on staffing that will run your site for you because even in our own case, we have a network of about six to 700 volunteers that run our sites for us. Forums are not really commercially oriented sites where you have staff and payroll. It is people who care a lot about the subject. For example, we own a site called PB Nation, which is the world's largest paintballing community. All of the staff there are people who love the sport of paintball. They're not hired because of their experience in community management. They're given an opportunity to contribute to the site because of the knowledge that they have and their expertise. So it's a very different way of doing things. But anyone can go to yuku.com and set up their own community in just a few minutes. Pick the style, pick the colors, decide what you want to name it, and then once you've set it up, you can go in and create all the different sections and the taxonomy that you think will appeal to your members. So this is basically a business model built on the passions of others, whatever and whomever they are. Absolutely, yes. That is what we're trying
trying to capture. If you think of the internet, you look at things like Facebook. We're often asked, what if Facebook does this? What if LinkedIn does this? Let's be practical. Facebook is a social network. So if they enable more groups and communities, they tend to be fan-based, people who are fans of products or people. Those aren't necessarily the types of communities we're focused on. We're looking at subject matter-focused communities, people who are into railroad car modeling, people who are into rap music, video games, people who are parents and want to gather together to discuss parenting techniques. So in our subjects, you're not going to see these things reflected on people's Facebooks or LinkedIn. If somebody's a world-class scuba diver, where do they put those passions? Chances are they belong to one of the two or three largest scuba diving communities, all of which are forums. Our goal is to keep showing folks how valuable these communities are, how great they are for learning, and to make sure that they survive because they are the oldest citizens of the internet. Forums go back to their ancestors, the bulletin board services, which are pre-World Wide Web. We believe that we have been entrusted with very old and special places on the internet, and our goal is to preserve them in the future so they can continue to give value to new members. Let's talk about the fact that you're a publicly traded company. In the late 90s, Sanjay, there was a plethora of internet companies, and there were some great opportunities for investors for a while, and then that bubble popped. The difference between, let's say, 1998 and 2012 is that the internet is very well established now, but it's not necessarily in the mindset of potential investors to invest in an internet company, especially after the recent Facebook IPO debacle. How does CrowdGather step aside from this perception toward many publicly traded internet concerns? That's a great question, and I think it's also correct in the sense that we have not really had any interest in American internet stocks since about 2001, and that's a long time ago, and the industry has matured, the revenues are real. We see all of the valuations driven by the internet reflected in just two or three big companies, Apple, Google, and Facebook. And that doesn't really seem correct because there are so many of us that are doing a great job that are growing in one of the best sort of segments of technology worldwide, which is growth in consumer internet. The U.S. leads in that category. CrowdGather is very proud to be part of it, but you wouldn't think this category is existing and growing based upon valuations publicly. To use our own humble story as an example, we raised money last year at a $60 million pre-money valuation. We did a private placement with large institutional investors, including John Hancock Mutual Funds. That was done at a $60 million pre-money valuation. Today, our market cap is $8 million. We are trading at a 50% discount to our tangible book value. And what's happened since that financing to now? What is the reason that we are down 85 or 90%? Well, let me tell you what's happened since that financing. Since that financing, we've had three record quarters, a record fiscal year, which we reported that, that was this April, the end of our fiscal year. We've had myself and another director, James Sachs, buy in the open market when the stock first fell below a dollar. We raised money at a dollar ten a share. We are currently trading at 13 cents a share. I have personally bought stock at 80 cents, at 50 cents. This was in my IRA, so I basically ran out of money in my IRA. We have really executed as well as could be imagined, and as a result, who knows? We've given up trying to second-guess the market. What we're doing is we're focused on building a great company. If you look at our last quarter, it was a record quarter. We did 590000 Out of that, gross profit was 580000 Our gross profit margin is over 95%. Why? Because there's really no cost of goods. Everything is digital. The ads show up automatically. The members post how they want. Everything is on servers. Whenever you can digitize and re reduce the friction out of a model, you can improve your margins. 
So here we are, a company trading at half of our net worth with 95 plus percent gross margin, with a great board of directors, board of advisors, and the biggest catalyst to the growth in our company's history, we just launched two weeks ago. So I believe that those that are looking at the segment that believe that the internet is a growth market, which it is, it would be a good investment strategy to look for companies like us right now, those that are undervalued, and understand that even though we have nothing to do with Facebook, we suffered because of their lackluster IPO. But right now, if you look at their last quarter, they look like they were starting to ramp up a little. And as a Facebook user, I see a lot more ads on my Facebook page, a lot more sponsored stories. Well, if they have a record December and announce that sometime in February, I think it will lift all internet microcaps. So this is a great time to look at the sector and to start deciding which companies you value, which companies management you believe in, which companies business models do you think can scale. And I think the more work your listeners do on CrowdGather, by the way, our symbol is CRWG, the more they look us up, the more due diligence they do, I think people are going to come away very impressed and, and end up as shareholders. That's what's always happened. We just need to have people know that we exist because it's very difficult when you're not Facebook, right? The world is divided into the Facebook, Google, and Apple and everyone else. We're in the everyone else category, and we really appreciate the opportunity you've given us to tell our story. Well, you're quite welcome. I thank you for the opportunity to purvey that story. So take the Facebook debacle stock-wise out of the picture here, and you have several success stories on the internet currently. And I'm guessing you don't have half a billion shares of stock out. No, not even close. Like I said, our total value right now is $8 million, but our tangible net worth is $16 million, right? So we're trading at half price, as the saying goes. What I remember about these internet companies back in the late 90s is that they were all R&D, research and development. Most of them were unsuccessful. And again, people made money purely from the stock alone in many cases. If you were to attract even a small percentage of that audience now, you could build quite a nice market cap in the coming months, potentially. Yeah, you know, market cap is tangential to building a good company and that's really where we are right now i think we're building a good company i think if people look at our past filings looked at the development of the company understood that we did what would be considered insanity we went public april of 2008 via reverse merger right before the world and economy ended we're still here i have friends that did similar transactions whose companies are long gone not only are we still here last year we were able to raise 7.8 million at a dollar 10 from great institutional investors we were able to hire a COO, a VP of ad sales. Everything we had done prior to that was literally like the two guys in the garage. Now we have a small office. We're at 14 people. We don't intend to double our headcount because we have plenty of people for the job at hand, but we want to scale our revenues. We have committed that with the cash that we have in the bank, we believe we have a very good chance of getting to profitability on our own. What would that mean? Well, if we got to profitability, we would never need to raise more capital in the market. We may do it in order to keep our growth rate going because we are a up. We live and breathe acquisitions and that's how we grow. Our dream is that anyone who owns a forum will trust us to take care of it for them when they decide that they've had enough and they want to move on. Well, Sanjay, it seems that there's quite a bit to discuss regarding CrowdGather and future trends involving the internet and internet marketing. I think our audience would also like to learn more about some of these forums you've been talking about. I look forward to more conversations in the coming weeks with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. Thank you, Ellis. It's been my pleasure. I've been speaking with Sanjay Sabnini, Chairman and CEO of CrowdGather. CrowdGather trades on the over-the-counter bulletin board under the symbol CRWG. That's CRWG. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com.
You know, you could become as smart as me by logging on to ellismartinreport.com. The following segment is sponsored by Expedition Mining, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EXU.V. Expedition has two dynamic gold projects in the Yukon and three in Nevada. Find them at expeditionmining.com. Dudley Baker is the editor of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. In March 2005, he founded and launched a new investment market data service, Precious Metals Warrants, which provides detail on all mining and energy company warrants trading on the U.S. and Canadian exchanges. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. This is Ellis Martin reporting from the San Francisco Investment Conference where people are here to seek out potential investment opportunities. I'm with my friend Dudley Baker. Dudley, welcome to the program at large. Hey, good to be here, Ellis. This is a pretty exciting show and a lot of great opportunities here with a lot of the companies that I personally follow. And we talked about some of those companies yesterday in your workshop where you spoke of them. And what constitutes a company that you're going to talk about or tell everyone about and follow with your newsletter? You know, so much of the companies that personally are in my portfolio, I like to think that The president of these companies, the top management, has a significant share position. We know for a lot of the big companies that's probably easy to do, but the small companies, I want to see that they've got million, couple of million shares, even in the in the 10, 20 cent range. May not be a lot of money today, but I want to see these officers, key people with some serious skin in the game. And I think this gives us a lot better opportunity. And it all gets down to people. You know, who are the people? you got to have good properties, geographical locations, etc. And kind of the hot spot for me in the world living in Mexico full-time is so many of the opportunities that we're finding are in the country of Mexico. Now, I heard a question posed at your workshop yesterday, and it was about uh, political unrest. And is there a chance that Mexico is going to go the way of Argentina or Bolivia or Ecuador, and that's just not going to happen in this century, is it? I don't see that happening. I mean, you could never say never, but I have no reason to believe that. I've started going to the investment conferences in Mexico over the last couple of months, in Durango, in uh, Hermosillo, big, big, big mining areas, gold and silver, in Mexico. These people are not there talking about stocks, promoting stocks, etc. This is the true business. This is the case, the caterpillars, the Mitsubishis of the world, major equipment, the drillers. And these guys, this is an incredible investment. So these are serious businessmen that in many cases, they don't even know that their shares trading on the companies that say they're drilling for. They're truly in the trenches of doing the business of mining. And this is so enlightening for me to go to these shows and see from a totally different perspective the true business of mining and to meet the really professionals. So these are serious business guys, and they've got a vested interest to ever think that the country of Mexico could encounter problems would be a major disruption to that whole economic area, you know, supporting the mining system. Does it give you more faith as a a potential shareholder to see a company doing the business of getting the ore out of the ground? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, and and I'm comfortable. I want to get to know management of all these companies and to meet, uh, in many cases, meet the drillers. Who's actually drilling the properties? Does that necessarily mean anything? Well, not really. But to me, it's kind of a cool connection. If I find a company I really like, especially if you've got insiders buying, the insiders have a nice position, 
and I just happen to know the individuals that are doing the drilling on those individual properties, it's almost like we're now one family with a common mission, common goal of being successful to build the resources for that company. Ultimately, what that means is higher share prices, and that's what we're all about with our services is making money, making money for ourselves and for all of our subscribers. We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by Expedition Mining, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EXU.V. Expedition has assets in the Yukon Territory as well as Nevada. Over 12.5 million ounces of gold have been produced from the Yukon since 1896, with a present-day worth of approximately $15.6 billion, and the territory is still relatively unexplored. Many of the known mineral occurrences are yet to be thoroughly investigated with modern exploration technologies. Expedition has recently begun its Joy and Mount Mervyn projects. These properties are located along the Rackland gold belt in the Yukon. In Nevada, Expedition Mining has 100% interest in three gold exploration properties located within the Walker Lane Mineral Belt. Like the Yukon, Nevada is one of the top 10 jurisdictions worldwide for encouraging mining investment. Nevada hosts many world-class gold deposits being exploited by major mining companies. With a strong management team, cash in the bank, and potentially prolific resources in the Yukon and Nevada, Expedition Mining is well-positioned for upward momentum in the resource sector. Visit their website, ExpeditionMining.com. Speaking of higher share prices, you're one of the few people I've interviewed that has come out and said, you know what, 2013, as we get into the spring, as we get into the summer, is going to be a very, very good year for resource stocks. I still believe that. It's hard to believe today, right, guys, listening? You're thinking, this guy Dudley Baker must be crazy. I think the, the switch could flip really quick. I've always had this target date. Some of you have listened before, hear the same thing. But my personal date is January 2014. It's going to be a significant peak in the markets. Now, we're roughly, what, 15 months out from this. A lot can happen in 15 months. So don't give up the ship just yet. And as the, the big speakers here, you know, Rick Rule, Pam Aiden on the podium here in San Francisco are saying this is the time to be buying. And they're buying. I'm buying. If you're not going to buy now, win. Dudley, you're the director, the newsletter writer for both the greedyguru.com and also preciousmetalswarrants.com. It's easy to be a subscriber. What do you have to do? Just visit either of those websites, you know, preciousmetalswarrants.com, the greedyguru.com. Two slightly different methodologies, two great independent services. You know, I think we'll open the doors to you. What we're really after is to provide you with great investment opportunities. All the information is there, and we'd like everybody to do their own due diligence, but it's easy to become a subscriber, and i uh, love to have you on board. We've got a lot of happy people in the world, current subscribers. Well, Dudley, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. I appreciate you joining us today here at the San Francisco Investment Conference. Thanks, Ellis. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. This segment has been sponsored by Expedition Mining, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EXU.V. Expedition has two dynamic gold projects in the Yukon and three in Nevada. Find them at ExpeditionMining.com. This is Ellis Martin, and I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with Pablos Panagopoulos and Kevin Hudak with the Financial Network. Kevin and Pablos, welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you, Ellis. Pleasure. The election perhaps didn't go the way of half the people in this country, and it went the way of the other half. Do you think that the winning part of the population right now, those that voted for President Obama, how do you think the election is going to affect those that are involved in the financial world to begin with? 
Pablos? Um, well, we've seen the market the last few days falter, and today it's kind of flat, but there's a lot of uncertainty going on. Clients, of course, are nervous about the upcoming fiscal cliff and what's going on in the political situation, and so we in the financial service business are also nervous as well about what's going to happen, uh, repercussions of regulatory legislation that may be coming down the pipe. I just saw something about Elizabeth Warren that Wall Street's uh, nervous about her and her election to the Senate. So lots of issues, not only the market faltering, but also regulatory issues as well. Kevin? My client's biggest concern are the taxes. They know the taxes are going up. They're not quite sure how much and when exactly. That's where Congress and the president have to deal with the fiscal cliff issues. But they know they're going up. They just don't know exactly where and how. And so some of them are looking at what do we do in the next seven weeks before the end of the year to adjust that as best we can. Is the conception amongst perhaps your clients and people that are investing to hold off before they make any investment decisions? Once people get a handle on Congress being back, the rhetoric coming out of Washington, and then we'll start seeing movement, I believe. And if they can come up with a compromise, the fiscal cliff issues go away for a while. We'll probably go into the new year, I would think, fairly close to being flat or up a little bit. But if there's contention on the TV at night, we could see everything they're worried about for the first week of January happening in December because people not waiting until January to what actually happens. So they'll start doing things earlier. So we could have the effects of the fiscal cliff as early as a little after Thanksgiving in the middle of December. They're just unknowns. And so that's where we're going to have to just play it as it comes. You know, Pablo, the phrase fiscal cliff is a phrase we've heard of for quite some time, but it's now the catchphrase that appeared the day after the election. So that's been the thing that everybody's been talking about, and that's what's on everyone's mind, the fiscal cliff. It is definitely a known situation that's been out there for quite a long time, and we've seen the budget impasse, and we've seen we're now at $16 trillion in debt and, and climbing, and so that information's been out there for quite a long time, but now it's at the forefront. I did hear about exit polls saying that individuals were worried about the fiscal cliff and thought that the government should try to tighten their belt and try to cut the budget, but when it came to, would you be willing to tighten your belt, the exit polls showed that individuals were interested, Ellis, in you tightening your belt, but not their belt. It seems like it's kind of a counterproductive thing in that they're looking at what the problems are, but nobody wants to belly up to the bar and pay the piper. And that's what we're seeing now. Do you expect any kind of continued sell-off? It's come a bit flat during the last couple of days, but I would think uh, if you're cashing up and cashing out, that that becomes a tax liability, does it not? Yes, you do have tax liability if you have gains on the sale. But what people are looking at is anywhere from four and a half to five percent less if they do the sale now compared to they do it January 1 because they know that the taxes are going up. And so just depending on how they're adjusting their personal portfolios and what they're doing in their own lives, that's where this business has always been and always will be a personal business because everyone's a little bit different. So we could see a dramatic tax sell-off this year that we've, we, we haven't seen for years. It just depends on how the rhetoric goes, in my opinion, from Congress to the president and how it plays on the evening news. If we get a contentious president and a contentious Congress saying, no, we're not going to do it this way, we're not going to do it that way, or we are just going to let it ride, that's when you're going to have a lot of problems, and I think they'll happen fairly quick if that's what happens next week. The fiscal cliff's been a known deal since March or April, but every time someone brought it up, they said, we are going to wait until the election is over, and then we'll deal with it. The problem is we've got seven weeks to the new year, and we're staring at 
the holidays in between. So basically, we've got a little over four or five weeks, and that's it. And so this has got to come together fairly quick. And it's a question of, are they willing to do that? And most people, I think, you know, yes, they are see the problems that we're having in this country, but we're a society of immediate gratification, and they're not really wanting to tighten their belts. I mean, whether it's Congress or the president, it seems like it's easier just, as they say, to kick the can down the road or extend the fiscal cliff out further seems a lot less painful than having to deal with the problems and the issues. I mean, again, we're at $16 trillion in debt and climbing, and there eventually will be an end to that. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the cliff is there, and you got Thelma and Louise, and I don't know who's Thelma, Congress, and who's Louise, uh, <laughs> Barack Obama, but, you know, we just hope that they don't just decide to go over that fiscal cliff. But, you know, so far, hopefully cooler heads prevail. So January 1st, or the few days before that, sort of feels like Y2K. Exactly. As a matter of fact, analogy that was used by one investment company was that the fiscal cliff will be a non-event. It's like Y2K. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's what I think, but it has been out there and been talked about for quite a long time. Again, what has to be done in order to avoid the fiscal cliff is very painful. And like I said, we live in a society of immediate gratification and individuals don't want to have to pay higher taxes, don't want to have to tighten their belt or do what they need to do, even in their own household, let alone the government wanting to cut back. Hasn't this president been good for Wall Street? It depends how you define good. Well, the market's near 13,000 compared to what it was at the end of 2008. Actually, if you look at the numbers that I've seen, in when the president on Election Day 2008, we were within 100 points of where we were on Election Day 2012. Same thing with the S&P. And so the things that have changed is gold's up almost 960 or $70. Silver is up in a higher percentage. I don't remember exactly where it was in 08. With the amount of money coming in with QE1, 2, and 3, it has brought the Dow up from, it bottomed out somewhere around 666. Six, that was the S&P. Right. But the, the Dow was in those kind of ranges too. So yes, it's come up four or 5,000 points, but it depends on where you start the gauge and how you gauge it. If you're looking at the bottom in March of 2009, yeah, we've had a heck of a run. Same thing with the S&P. It's come from 666 all the way to a little over 1400 about four days ago. So those are wonderful percentage rises. The problem is where are we going to go now in we're post-election? He gets inaugurated on the 20th of January, and then three or four months into the springtime, that's when you're going to see exactly what happens with this. And if they can deal with the fiscal cliff and move forward... Then you're looking at compromises in Congress where how do we adjust the tax code? How do we do the budget to where we're not running one and a half, two trillions in deficit and then three or four trillion off budget? Because that's the part everyone forgets about. The wars both in Afghanistan and Iraq were off budget. How you can do that, I'm not quite sure, but that's what it is. I wish you could run my household that yeah, way. I was going to say. Take it off budget, but I guess you, we can't do if that. If you could take your household budget, triple it be able to write the checks for everything you wanted to do, that's exactly what the U.S. government's doing. And we can't do it personally. But as a government, we can, or they can, or however you want to put it. So it's something that's going to have to be dealt with because one day, and that we don't know if it's real close or pushed out in time, and that is when the rest of the world refuses U.S. dollars. That's when this whole thing collapses in on top of itself. We're not there yet. Let's say Europe continues the way it's going and the dollar continues to absorb the decline of the euro. We've got quite some time yet before the dollar becomes a liability and gold becomes worth more than it actually is. Right. There's going to be eventually an end game, and right now the dollar is the best-looking house in an ugly neighborhood. 
for now, you know, we're able to continue to print money and the world is absorbing it. It's because our currency seems to be better than the euro. And so our currency seems to be holding its value better than some of the other currencies. But if you look at the price of gold, gold has basically, like Kevin was saying earlier, my son is 11 years old. And when he was born, gold was at $264 an ounce. And today it's around 1724, right? So give or take, give or take a few bucks. And of course, uh, at the same time period, the S&P 500 has gone nowhere. Yes, they're able to you know keep, continue to kick the can down the road, but eventually, like Kevin said, if they no longer accept dollars exchange for real assets, that could be a problem, and the dollar could falter. In 1979, when I got out of college, they were talking about we're at the end game of the U.S. dollar, and they've been able to get through all of the stuff of 81, 82. The markets took off, and we've had uh, a 30-year run that's been borderline unbelievable in the stock markets, the bond markets, those kind of things. And so they've been able to push this off 30 some odd years that I've been watching it. And so they may be able to push it off another 5, 10, 20. We just don't know. However, there will be a day and and throughout history, there's not been a fiat currency that has lasted. And so it will come to an end. We just don't know when. And they can keep pulling rabbits out of the hat. Now, Kevin, you and I have come across each other various places in North America, usually at mining conferences, were gold and silver stocks. What would you say to the potential gold bug at $1,700 an ounce? The one thing that's overriding the entire philosophy, as far as I can see, is I get this question all the time. Should I buy gold now? And where do you think it's going? And I'm saying that every day that you can buy gold is an opportunity because until the U.S. government quits spending money it doesn't have and lives inside its own budget, the price of gold and silver will continue to go up because there'll be more dollars every day in the system. Every major currency in the world is inflating and inflating their currency. And so as you do that, the price of gold is going up in yen, it's going up in yuan, it's going up in sterling, it's going up in the euro. And so there's a lot of considerations going on, but like Pablo said, There's uh, five major currencies in the world, and right now the U.S. dollar looks to be the better-dressed one. But that doesn't mean it's not fiat. I mean, it's still based on confidence. I think there's a difference between ideal money. It's ideal money and real money. Real money is something that, you know, holds its value and is a storage of value. You look at gold and silver throughout the ends of time. Gold and silver has held its value throughout history, even dating back to ancient Greeks, they ended up doing fiat currency as well. And so there's no, been no fiat currency throughout the eons of time that has held up like gold and silver have always been a storage of value. And I consider really precious metals as being more of nature's currency um, versus man-made currency or what I call ideal money. It's ideal money is something that a government says, here's what a dollar is worth or a yen is worth or a yuan is worth. Um, that's ideal money. But real money is something that holds its value. I mean, take a look at what's happening in a hurricane in New Jersey. You know, if you have gasoline and that's it's money. storage, that's money. So, you know, they may be selling gasoline at $8 a gallon on Craigslist. That's dollars. So the gasoline is the real asset and the real currency, not the paper greenback that they're trading for that gasoline. So if this were Argentina or Zimbabwe... Or maybe the United States someday, if there's a currency collapse, for certain silver or gold is real money. If you work it backwards, and that's what I do, and that is, if you take this back to 1911, before we had a Federal Reserve, 
the value of the U.S. dollar compared to the value of the U.S. dollar today, it's today's currency against the 1911 value is two cents. So it's lost 98% of its value of what it could purchase. You heard about the nickel loaf of bread, the penny candy, the all of those things that was turn of the century up into the 1920s. Well, if you look at what it costs today, that's where you get the two cents versus the current dollar. And it's, it's phenomenal. It works out in almost everything we've seen. What are your thoughts about commodity stocks right now, precious metals? The commodity stocks, once again, you've got to look at something that will hold value. Gold and silver have always been the go-to money throughout history. That's not arguable. It's just the way it is. Then you add things like the soft commodities, food. They're always in demand because, I don't know about you, but I like to eat two or three times a day. And right now, we don't have the greatest food supply worldwide. You can't, you can't eat your cell phone, right? Again, well, you know, they no. talk about the, the Arab Spring uprising and Twitter and freedom of speech. Really, I think it's hunger that drives people to do extraordinary things like revolution or what have you, because when prices go up, whether it's energy or food or other commodities, it drives people into adverse situations. A lot of the Arab Spring was related to food, in fact, that People can't afford to buy it and, and what have you. Uh, are you looking at, on behalf of your clients, for soft commodity possibilities for investors? Yes. Actually, up until two years ago, to buy into the soft commodities, you almost had to be in the futures market because that's where it was all done. But in the last two years, we now have tradable ETFs that are very easy to trade. Liquidity on them is very good. And so you can buy corn, you can buy soybeans, you can buy wheat, you can buy a lot of different things as an ETF and not have to worry about timestamps, you know, future deadlines and all those things because that is all managed by the ETF. And so you can buy uh, into, say, the soybeans and uh, just watch the idea of what the soybean market's going to do. So these aren't futures, these are ETFs. These are ETFs, and you can buy them right on the New York Stock Exchange. It's very, very easy these days compared to two years ago. You can buy closed-end funds that hold precious metals yeah. as well. So there's other down ETFs, but closed-end mutual funds that trade on the American Stock Exchange that are um, and been around years. They trade as like ETFs, but things like GLD and SLV, which are not my two favorites, CEF and GTU in Canada are both gold and silver and gold, and CEF has been here since 1983. So it has a track record, and you can follow what it's done over that time period. So are you looking toward energy stocks now, mid-tier companies, small-cap energy companies? Because uh, one of the things that I know about that end of the resource sector is you know, you, you drill a hole, you have oil, you, you can use it as revenue right away. It's not necessarily the case with, with a mining company. I've been putting my clients into the integrated oil companies plus the natural gas companies. We're looking at yield, not only the capital gains on something like ExxonMobil, which is paying a little over 4%, but there's a few, maybe a handful of natural gas companies out of southern Canada that have paid 5 6 7% dividends, and it's been consistent for years and years and years. And so it's a way of diversifying clients' money out of the United States dollar into something a little more stable, the Canadian dollar, because it's a resource economy. And it spreads risk because we're not all sitting in one currency. And so you can look at those. There's a handful of natural gas companies there. There's a handful of major oil companies there, let alone the major oil companies in the United States. There's also natural gas companies in southern Texas that pay wonderful dividends. So when I see you out on the road, what are you looking for? What's your goal? My goal basically is to put clients where their money can work for them, and we're looking at risk-reward. And that's what the entire investment business is all about. You're going to have to take risks. 
but you're looking at the risk-reward ratios and what looks like a good risk today can change tomorrow. And then we look at the reward to see, is it worth the risk? And so that's basically, in a nutshell, what my business is all about. And it doesn't matter if it's mining or natural gas or oil or foodstuffs or pick something. If we can find something wonderful in pharmaceuticals, I'll go after it. It's just a question of being very, very careful and looking at the risk-reward. And I'll concur with what Kevin said. We're always looking at being diversified, not making any one bet on any one commodity or soft commodity or hard commodity or one particular security because there's a lot of unknowns out there. And right now, I would say that for investors, the time right now is to be heir to the side of more of the conservative and more of the safety. And I think uh, Kevin would agree with that as well, because right now individuals are worried about the fiscal cliff. What is in store for us with any agreement from Congress and the White House? Right now, I would prefer to be in hard assets and basic necessities to be invested in, whether it's equities or other type of investments versus being in growth-oriented investments like technology and internet companies. Caution, I believe, is the watchword because we have seven weeks to get through this mess that we're staring at in Washington. And once that is resolved, one way or the other, we can make the adjustments on our end. It's just the unknown, and that's where you have to have caution. So what are you telling me, let's say I'm potentially a new client of yours, okay? I'm coming here, and I want to do something with discretionary income. Are you going to tell me to wait for seven weeks, or are you going to do something with it? Basically, what I start out with is we'll probably split it up into thirds. The precious metals, if you've looked historically, if you look at the last two years, it's been forming a base. August of 2011, gold hit its high at 1923. It's come all the way down to 1500 and change and bounced right back up. And so if you look from the chartist point of view, it's forming a long base between 1650 and 1725. As you talk to these kind of people that look at charts and understand them or have it, it's a different language, trust me. It is a question of... The longer the base and the more stable the base, it's used as a platform to jump higher, generally. And so we're looking at that in gold. We're looking at that also in silver. Silver hit its highs in uh, 1st of May 2011 and has been cut in half, has bounced off of that by 10, 15%, and is forming a long, stretched-out base in this $30, $33 range. And so normally those are lifting points to where they'll climb from there. The longer the base, the longer the run up, how it's been put to me. And so... What I'm looking at doing with clients is putting some of their money to work there. I'm looking at energy for two reasons. One, everyone needs energy for a modern society. hundred years ago, you used to be able to shut a building off or you shut your house off. Now, everything runs around the clock. And so we're going to need a certain amount of energy every minute of the day. Does it go along on natural gas? Uh, natural gas is part of that energy. You've got, you know, up until three years ago, uranium was a big deal with nuclear power and everything else. That has all gone to the wayside, especially with the Japanese earthquake last year. But if you look at oil, natural gas, coal's been hit hard, except that 50% of the U.S. power still comes from coal. Those are places I look at, and then the foodstuffs, because even this year, with corn being basically half the crop that they were expecting because of the drought, China's reporting record corn crop this year, but Argentina and Brazil is talking about problems getting the crop in the ground. So there's all kinds of things. We've become a world market, so you have to look at almost everything all the time. It's not just what's going on in the United States Midwest. So my take on it, Ellis, is if you had a choice of stuffing your money in the mattress, putting it in a money market would be something similar because the yield would be virtually nil 
on cash. And if you could look and buy maybe a treasury bond, a 10-year treasury bond is paying virtually nothing as well. So those are, you know, basically what investors consider safe money. And inflation, if you look at, you know, what real inflation is, what the government reports it is, you know, it's running somewhere, depending upon who you believe, somewhere between 2% and 6%. Your cash is slowly eroding in uh, purchasing power. We talked about that. Kevin mentioned that you go back in um, history and, you know, your dollar is devaluated by 98%. What else can you do but buy things that are real, that are equity-based, and things that derive either their income? I like convertible preferreds from some natural gas companies, you know, that basically play income and are tied to the base commodity, whether it's energy, food, precious metals, even some precious metals companies pay nice dividends. You get some income versus not getting anything on your cash holdings. But again, I would say the word of caution would be in place. And I do look at precious metals more as insurance, a little different than what Kevin looks at it, but I see it as insurance against something happening and the continuing debasement of our currency and our dollar. So I see basically that's what I look at precious metals, not necessarily as an investment, but more as an insurance policy against what could happen. So general optimism for your business then in 2013? Yeah, no question about it. And to finish my last thought, and that is we're saving roughly a third of the money in cash or cash positions. So once this argument in Washington is figured out and we know which direction it's going, then we'll deploy that money. The key to this deal is, and it goes back to something Jim Dine says a long, long time ago, and that is give me a trend and we can follow it. That's what we need to do. And right now we're treading water because we don't know what Congress and the president is going to do. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico with Pavlos Panagopoulos and Kevin Hudak of Financial Network. And gentlemen, I really appreciate your being here with me today. Thank you very much for being on the Ellis Martin Report. Thank you, Ellis. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Ellis, thank you very much. And... Um, any questions, that's what we're here for. You can listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, theellismartreport.com. Join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the Silver Guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is themorganreport.com. David, welcome back to the program. It's great to be with you, Ellis. No matter how one wishes the election may have turned out, the fact is that we've had a great four years overall for precious metals. Perhaps we can expect something potentially astronomical during the coming four years. And I think it would be true regardless of who's in there. We are, in my view, nearing the last phase of this major bull market in the precious metals. And this is where, and I'm so fond of saying, where you get 90% of the move in the last 10% of the time. And this is, is something that I think I really need to start emphasizing again. There's a lot of people that are not in this market that wish they had been. Looking back, this was under five and gold was in under 300. And they'd probably be willing to get in, you know, looking backwards at, uh, you know, 10 or $15 silver and 500 $600 gold. Regardless, the big moves lie ahead in my view. This is how all markets move. The biggest move in the Dow Jones Industrial Average took place in the last six months of time. Same thing with the NASDAQ. It shot up significantly in the last six months during the major bull market. So I expect that in the metals as well. And I really do think that if you got in in you know, the $30 range in silver and somewhere in the uh, $1,700, $1,800 range in gold, you still can see significant gains in real terms moving forward. You say that we're in the last phase of a bull market for precious metals. Does that mean we're now in a bubble? 
much like the internet bubble of the late 90s and the recent real estate bubble? Well, first of all, let me be clear. I don't think we are in the last phase yet. I think the last phase is coming up. And I think we've probably got about four more years, you know, the next term of this presidency. Probably within that time frame, I think we will see the ultimate top in the medals. Could be wrong, but I, that's exactly what I see. Will it be a bubble? And the answer to that is possibly. I think that we could see it. I mean, all markets can go undervalued, fair valued, and overvalued. Right now, both gold and silver, silver particularly, are not even fair valued on historical terms. They are, again, silver particularly, are undervalued relative to historical norms. I think we're going to see that, again, take place within the, probably the 2015-2016 time frame, probably about the next time that you really see a lot of campaigning for the next president of the U.S. In that time frame, you'll see these metals just shooting up significantly. Bubble-wise, yes. If you see gold go outside of its traditional purchasing power on a historical basis, for an example, you know, the adage that during Roman times, one ounce of gold would buy a fine man's toga and sandals and all that, or a fine man's suit or whatever. If you can take an ounce of gold and buy, you know, a men's clothing store, then obviously it's clearly overvalued relative to historic terms. And that's what I'm going to do to measure whether or not we're overvalued or undervalued on the metals, because putting it into paper terms could be an absurd way to judge whether or not these metals are overvalued or not, because paper could be depreciated at such a rapid rate at that point in time that it would have no real context. So that's why I'm evaluating the markets or plan to evaluate the markets in the future. At that time, are you going to recommend that people perhaps should let loose of their positions? Well, that is the hardest thing, and of course, I've thought it through and, you know, subject to change. But again, you know, if these things, if the metals are overvalued, then I would be recommending moving into another asset class at the time. In other words, getting something real, for example, rental real estate or raw land or businesses always make sense if they're businesses that are, you know, doing well. The other options could be in the stock market, depending on, you know, what companies are out there, if they're paying dividends or not, but particularly if they were where you could get solid returns on a solid company. So really, I don't want to be too vague, but I don't want to be too specific either because it's pretty hard. We've never really gone through a monetary experiment where we were in a paper money system where it was a global basis. We've certainly seen it on a nation-state basis time and time again. In fact, in recent times, you know, we've seen Argentina, we've seen Zimbabwe, we've seen several nation-states, and the biggest one nation-state-wise was really the Russia experiment. That was more than just a paper-money experiment. That was primarily you know, central government planning that failed. But I want to stay open-minded, but I also want to give some general outlines here that there are ways to value the metal regardless of what the paper price is. Speaking of devaluation, we've seen a drop-off of about 3% in the Dow since the election. But conversely, gold and silver seem to have held at recent prices as they were before the election. Well, they both got whacked pretty good. I mean, silver and gold went up significantly in a short-term basis, and then they got whacked pretty hard just recently, but they've recovered already somewhat, and I think perhaps the worst a short-term basis is behind us. I'm still looking for 35 to $40 silver by the end of the year, and that's only about six weeks away. And in terms of gold, I'm looking at about $1,800 gold, and again, we're a month and a half out from that. Are you looking for buying opportunities right now before January 1st? You know, I think now is a buying opportunity, really. It's really hard to time these markets. I've done quite well. In fact, the position trading that I do and I show to our more advanced service, I've been very successful at that. Not every trade has been a winner, but the ones that have, which are the majority of them, have far exceeded the losers, and, you know, it's done quite well. So I think, yes, we are 
at a point where the metals are probably not going to see you know twenty six dollars silver, which was really the low that we've had the most recent time frame in roughly fifteen fifty on gold. I think those are behind us. Don't think that you should really expect to see much of a bargain on silver under the thirty dollar range. I mean, I told everybody, public and private, people that get my private work in the members only section of the website, thirty dollars silver or lower, buy it, buy it, and buy it. Now, well, there was about a six-month opportunity for that to take place, and I'm sure many of my members did. And now the worst that we've seen on this big sell-off that we saw recently was about to 31, which is obviously above 30. And the point I'm making is I don't think you're going to see $30 silver again. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. And so what's a good buy? Is 32 a good buy? Yeah, I'd say it probably is. I'd say, you know, if we want to project out... I'm saying 35 to 40 by the end of this year, and if that proves true, then anything under 35 uh, on a longer-term paid-for cash-only basis, I'm not talking about using leverage here, would be a buy. On the gold side, I'd say anything under 1,800 would be a buy. So for the next year or two, perhaps, anything would possibly be a buy, unless we see a spike. Right. That's the right idea. I mean, you know, as I said, I do position trading, and that can be quite lucrative. It's not with all... You know, it's with money that you allocate to trading. And the beauty about trading is that you can set a limit. I mean, you can say, I'm going to use X amount of money for trading, and that's all I'm going to use, and therefore you can limit your losses. Anyway, moving on, yeah, the general idea is we're going to have an uptrending market over the next two years, and certainly the metals have a tendency, like any market, particularly silver, to get ahead of itself at times. And then, of course, those are opportunities, depending if you're you know wise enough or see it and don't let you know, your emotions run away with you to take advantage of that. And there'll be several of those on the way to the ultimate top. The hardest thing to do is to try to get an ultimate top in any market. It's really difficult. But, you know, I've been there once, and I've called the two large tops so far, the $21 top in silver and $48 top in silver, both those very accurately. So hopefully, with my skill, luck, uh, whatever you want to call it, I'll be able to get the ultimate top or close to it. And, again, it's got to be in real terms, and I also would want very much to offer an exit strategy that would make sense to our members, to the people that pay me for for the advice that me and my team of researchers provide the Morgan Report. Speaking of the Morgan Report and something considerably more risky than the precious metals themselves, precious metals stocks, gold and silver stocks right now in the juniors, scary proposition or, again, a buying opportunity at this moment? Well, both, and just to be clear, we do feature speculations, but we really stress top-tier and mid-tier companies first. But on the speculative side, yeah, there's bargains throughout the sector, particularly in the junior space, particularly if you know how to value companies. Exploration companies really can't be valued, so I'm not really talking about that space. I'm talking about junior companies that have merit or can be you know, analyzed in normal metrics where you can find what the asset is and what the peer group would sell for with, you know, given ounces in the ground and that type of thing. And we've really been successful there as far as finding bargains that kind of ahead of the herd where we find them before they're very well known whatsoever, which is kind of what you want. You want to buy the, you know, the old adage, buy straw hats in the winter. You want to buy something when no one else is really interested in it, even in the sector. And those opportunities still exist, believe it or not. They're not as easy to find as they were, say, 10 years ago when I was writing the report all by myself. But, you know, I've got two researchers working with me. And between the three of us, we are able to come up with very good opportunities in not only the speculative side, but in some of the mid-tier. And uh, we actually added something 
to the top tier not that long ago. The website is themorganreport.com. David, once again, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. It's always a pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Yeah, you did. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves, thinking you might actually be interested. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. For Ellis Martin, this is your announcer, Cool Voice Guy. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.